Hey everybody, welcome to the 1947 Rise podcast. A podcast that helps India-born US trained Indians get integrated into the Indian technology ecosystem and inspires them to move back to India to build massive tech companies and or help enable the tech ecosystem. We do this by interviewing India-born US trained Indians who have moved back to India and built massive tech companies themselves and or helped enable the tech ecosystem. I'm excited to have Anshum Bhambri. Anshum is the founder of Fancraze. Fancraze is creating the metaverse for cricket. It recently got funded by the likes of Insight Partners, Tiger Global, Sequoia Capital India, Cristiano Ronaldo, Fun and others. Prior to founding Fancraze, Anshuman studied, worked and lived in the US. Anshum, welcome to the show. Hi, hi thanks sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Let's start by you walking us through your journey of growing up in india and then moving to the us <clears throat> and then moving back to india what made you move back to india and and how did you navigate the move yeah like uh, i i unlike uh, you know like a lot of indians uh, studied computer science growing up uh, was an engineer uh, moved to the us uh, to stanford to study financial mathematics which was an interdisciplinary program between the departments of mathematics statistics and the business school i subsequently spent around 6 to 7 years in wall street the first four of which i was trading and structuring complex equity derivatives and the next two years i was a tech banker advising the top tech companies uh, between my two wall street stints both my wife and i i got married in the interim and both my wife and i went uh, and got an MBA at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Uh this was my second master's degree so I was very keen to do something, you know, productive outside of the classroom. So I, mm-hmm. me and a friend of mine decided to take a scholarship money and savings and build a video game. It was very counterintuitive, you know, to the uh, first product to be as complex as a video game because it's got a ton of things from art direction, storyboarding, programming, marketing, monetization and it was having to be done along with a full-time MBA program but you know there was some passion there there was always this thing that you know if we made a game we would make something like this and i think that kept us going and uh, you know this was back in 2014 2015 we were able to build a remote team across eastern europe and uh, latin america and parts of southeast asia again you know that was that was just because we couldn't afford good game developers in the us and you know honestly remote teams are so easy today with all of these productivity tools and collaboration tools that was a challenge but you know we launched a game it was a third person shooter for iPhones and iPads primarily targeted towards US and UK users it was a paid game so it was not free you had to pay a couple of dollars and a dollar later to download it we got hundreds of thousands of downloads made a decent enough profit but i think what we actually understood from it was you know uh, how you need to build a product that people pay for on day one and you know unbeknownst to me that learning would be very useful later on in life and i'm i'm using it today because nfts per se aren't a free product they're a product where users need to pay for a collectible pay for a pay for a good that they can use in a game or they can use in in an engagement in engagement based experience so that being said that was like really really useful uh, along with that you know i also got introduced to the blockchain ecosystem at the university of chicago 
I thought I was late and I was FOMOing into it in 2014-15 because I heard about it from a bunch of these economics PhDs that were super excited at this new modern monetary system that did not rely on central banks and it basically took everything they had learned about economics for years and it completely turned it on its head. For me, I think I got caught upon a very simple concept and my mental model for blockchain-based technology was actually pretty straightforward. Uh, it was based on two things. The internet, as we know it, is an interconnected network of computers uh, that basically lets you send data from computer A to computer B. That's basically, simply put, what the internet is. And over the last 21, 22 years, as we have seen improvements in hardware, software, bandwidth, and the entire peripheral ecosystem around the internet, we've seen multiple business models being disrupted and we've seen even more new business models being created. So for me, blockchains were the first time that there was a store of value or there was a unit of value that lived on the internet that did not rely on the real world, that did not have any real world analog. Because, you know, whatever we have today is just a digital representation of money that actually lies in a bank account or in a mobile wallet or something of that sort. So I felt if value could live on the internet, if value could be programmable, that could create all sorts of new business models over the next 20 years. That was why I was fascinated with this space. While I was a banker, I continued, you know, investing in projects, you know, buying some of these uh, projects early. You know, my background helped me research the economics, finance and computer programming side of it. So it was a very natural fit to, you know, uh, to do this as a side hustle. You know, stocks seemed very boring because it was all about only investing, uh, you know, analyzing cash flows. This was more about analyzing, uh, <clears throat> you know, technology, uh, economic models, token models and incentives and mechanism design. So it was a very natural uh, side hobby, you know, something similar to Formula One, right? Like I'm a big nerd. I get into the technical specs of the engines. And, you know, that's why that sport is super exciting. So Blockchain-based technologies were a very similar experience for me. It was a very similar dungeons. Uh, I had no idea that this ecosystem would become this big. And, you know, it, it kept it kept eating at my head that, you know, I need to build something here. Uh, I had a very similar feeling to what I had when I was graduating Stanford in 2008 when the mobile ecosystem was growing, right? And like a lot of my friends, I had studied finance, so obviously the natural extension was to go to Wall Street. A lot of my Stanford friends were joining startups like like Facebook and Twitter. And we all know how that went up, right? Like those those companies created and, and disrupted everything we know. <clears throat> so from that perspective, I was like, I have to get into it. Uh, unlike a lot of my peers, I didn't want to build a better Wall Street. So DeFi wasn't that exciting. What I really wanted to do was DeFi was exciting, but building a DeFi protocol wasn't so exciting. So what I really wanted to do was I wanted to build products <clears throat> that enabled mainstream to onboard into into uh, the decentralized internet. So I'm actually building two products at the moment. Uh, one of them is uh, a decentralized wallet that's a direct on ramp into uh, into layer two networks. It's multi chain, so across Polygon, Solana, Arbitrum. Optimism, multiple uh, layer two networks, as well as low cost layer one chains. What that wallet is ultimately is also a gateway into various third party DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and the like. That's a company called Round. <clears throat> that's uh, that's being built by me and a bunch of other very smart co-founders. Uh, some of whom are smart contract and protocol developers at the top DeFi projects in the world. Uh, so we, we are building that, and that's obviously a project that's also going to go live very soon. Uh, while I was building this, I was approached by Sundar uh, Raman, uh, you know, uh, 
to you know create an NFT cricket NFT project. And uh, Sundar had started the IPL. He was the COO for the first ten years. He'd held multiple positions at the BCCI and the and the ICC. He wanted to work with somebody that could you know uh, figure out the product and the tech side of things while he figured out the relationships, the operations, and the marketing because pretty much Sundar was Mr. Cricket and Mr. Sports. After doing running the IPL, he also ran Reliance Sports as the CEO for five years directly for Mr. Ambani. And of course, that represents Mumbai Indians, but also represents a ton of other sporting initiatives of Reliance Industries. So this was this opportunity that came up. And, you know, I knew Roham from Dapper Labs through an Andreessen Horowitz uh, blockchain accelerator program that I was a part of. Again, that is serendipity. I was extremely fortunate to be amongst the 25 people that they selected. And that's why I met Roham while he was building Top Shot. So I always knew, you know, something similar to Top Shot and Cricket could work. But honestly, I'd never thought about it because I had no clue whether I would ever be able to get licenses. And so they're coming and approaching me and saying, you know, uh, I, I want to build this, but I can't build this alone. Uh, can you be my co-founder? Uh, you know, can you help me uh, with, with this? And, you know, that's when Fancraze was born. And that's been that journey. Uh, I've been in the U.S. and London since 2006 almost exclusively, except for a couple of years here or there in India. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and you know, Chicago for my MBA. Uh, really wanted to move back, always wanted to. My wife as well used to work in investment banking and now she works in private equity in India. Uh, so there was always that urge to go back. But, you know, uh, it's always that thing, what's the right opportunity? Will I find the right job? But, you know, once I started building my own thing, there was no question of finding a job. Uh, you know, it was your own thing. You could build it from anywhere as long as you had a MacBook and an internet connection. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that the move became super simple. I've got family in Bombay. So, again, that helped. My parents live here. Uh, I've got two boys now. So, COVID also gave us a lot of realization on, you know, what's important in life, just like it did to everyone. And being an only child, the opportunity to be back home, build a tech team uh, predominantly in India, be with my family, uh, have my kids be close to their grandparents. It was irresistible. But, you know, and I'm sure you have a lot of non-resident Indians that come back or that even if they don't come back, I think mainly the reasons to come back always personal. Uh, you know, professionally today in today's day and age, you can you can run a remote company. You can be India focused and you can be in the US and Dubai and Europe and Singapore, wherever. But I think the reason to be situated geographically in the homeland is is always part personal, and and that's the same. That was the same with me. Man, uh, tons of uh, dots that eventually got connected, huh? Engineer, uh, banker, gamer, got into blockchain, got a call from India, figured out, came back, now building a fan craze, and uh, it's all let's unpack. It's all serendipity. So, yeah, it, 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 you know, always used to, uh, you know, I've heard that Steve Jobs speech about the dots connecting uh, back, uh, you know, backward and you have you having no idea. And I always felt that, you know, it happens for few people, but, you know, it, it does happen. It, it does happen. Love it. Let's unpack uh, fan craze. Uh, where are we today? And, and, you know, what's the, the magical outcome that you hold uh, for uh, Fancraze? So I think Fancraze, uh, you know, the core mission is twofold. Uh, the first one is to create a direct economic relationship between the creator and the fan. You know, that's something that's true and it's been established in other industries like music and art where the creators make, you know, a direct economic uh, incentive from, uh, you know, a piece of their art selling. Uh, 
So whether it's Taylor Swift making royalty when her song is streamed on Spotify, or whether it's an artist getting royalty when his or her art is sold, now uh, in in sport and particularly in cricket, the predominant business model was B two B, where cricketers would make their wares from getting their salaries from the boards, from the IPL or other uh, you know T Twenty teams, or from brands and advertisers and sponsors. Uh, we've seen uh, across various products in cricket, there is a huge consumer spending that happens in cricket, but none of this directly reaches the cricketers, and we felt that was unfair. We felt Web three could actually disintermediate this problem, and it could actually create a very transparent relationship. There have been a couple of cricket-based companies that have created valuations of billions for themselves in the past decade, but they've done nothing for the cricketers apart from give them a few ads. And we just felt that you know that is in some sense something that can be completely disrupted by Web three. And I think that was the mindset that we came from. That you know uh, the the uh, the creator should be at the center. Uh, and you know the fan should be uh, you know the one that is dictating which which cricketer uh, actually ends up uh, you know getting the most economic value out of it, which is actually what happens, right? Like, and if, and I can I can bet you this. Like, uh, Sundar Sundar had this great analogy where he said, you know, it really doesn't matter. You know, all of these stadiums and cameras and broadcasts and 4K, none of it matters. Uh, if MS Dhoni is playing uh, on a beach, people will come to watch. Uh, it's it, it's basically a, a relationship between the fan and the and the cricketer, right? And because they create memories that live in our minds for years and years and years to come. And sadly, the best moments of magic that they create are not owned by them. They are owned by the board or the broadcaster or or in some case the team. So how can we figure out how we we monetize that relationship? And the second thing for us was, uh, you know, blockchain-based ecosystems hold great promise, uh, and this area is. Right now, being used for speculative uh, use cases, whether it's investing in in assets and hoping they go up, or used in like you know protocols that, in some sense or form, enable more speculation. We felt NFTs and utilities of NFTs through gaming and money can't buy experiences and real world access could actually get normal people into using blockchain based products as opposed to just investing in them. So I think that was a set. That's a second goal for us. What we've done so far, and we've been live for around two and a half months, which is uh, we have launched a pack drop mechanism where a pack is where users come in, queue up. Only some users get a pack. A pack is a collection of NFTs. Uh, users don't know what they will get inside the NFT, but they have an idea what are the forty or fifty NFTs of which these four or five will be drawn. How many could be common, rare, or epic? Whether rarity basically determines what is the supply and what is the quality of the of the NFT and what is the rarity of the actual moment in the real world. And we've enabled the marketplace where people can actually trade amongst each other. So far, we have we've done no marketing. We are completely organic. We've got millions of users, millions of volume, both in the primary and secondary marketplace, which is very heartening. We have we have rights of the ICC. Which is basically 50 years of nine rights from 1975 to 2025 for all men, women, and under 19 cricket that has happened at the international level with the ICC, which is an amazing superset of rights to have. Like think of it as FIFA Ultimate Team. Like no one could have built FIFA Ultimate Team in cricket because no one was able to build the web of rights that EA Sports was. We got the opportunity to do so. In addition, we've signed IPL teams, multiple IPL teams. We've signed multiple boards. We've announced Cricket West Indies. We'll, we'll announce the other ones soon. And we've signed around seventeen or eighteen of the top twenty cricketers by Instagram following. You know, whether it's a uh, MS Rohit, uh, Shikhar Shreyas, uh, you know, tons of them. And, and the idea there is to 
again, as I said, you know, for the for the rock star superstars, try to create uh, a new 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 streams of revenue. Uh, what this is what we have built. What we are building right now is a utility layer. So we look at NFT value as you know a component of uh, you know made up of three components. Number one is the collectible value. So you know how rare is this? Uh, is this moment something I really want to own? The second part is the the financial value, where people take a take a view on is this thing going to go up in the future, depending upon the player or depending upon the demand or the performance of the platform. And the third piece is the utility value. So for every NFT, these three values could be different. So, for example, an MS Dhoni six of the 2011 World Cup, which probably gets ends up being bought by by a whale collector, that doesn't really have utility value. No one's going to buy a half a million dollar, a million dollar NFT to play a video game. But on the other hand, a nine dollar or five dollar NFT, which is an MS Dhoni single, that if if usable in a real world game where the users are allowed to submit sets and then the sets are ranked based on certain performances or the sets are used within a game where the gameplay determines whether you win or you lose and you can basically play real money games based on these rules that is not really a collectible that's more of a utility value so those are the things that we're doing so at this point as we speak we're, we're about to launch our first game in the first week of may uh, uh, we we are um, we are preparing to launch another two games. So from our perspective, like a lot of people ask us, are you top shot? Are you so rare? Are you Axie? So we are we are top shot plus so rare plus Axie all in one. Uh, and and you know it's it, this is something that uh, sounded foolish to say four months ago, but given that we've already executed the top shot roadmap in our first two months, the Axie roadmap is getting executed over the next three, and the so rare roadmap will get executed by the end of the year. So. In some sense, you would be the first NFT platform which in nine months would have launched four or five products, uh, whereas others struggled to launch one properly. So from that perspective, uh, you know, we are in some sense ahead of the game, but in some sense, we are, we are standing on the shoulders of giants because we're learning from what Topshot did and what, uh, you know, what, what everyone else has done. On that note, I'd like to add our strategic partner is Dapper Labs. So we're building on their blockchain and, you know, they, they are helping us with, you know, uh, they have built... Uh, best experiences for all sports, whether it's NBA Top Shot, NFL All Day, UFC Strike, La Liga, and they have other unannounced projects that are equally big that are coming up. So it's pretty much like the gold standard of sports NFTs or our own flow blockchain. Uh, and from our perspective, it's like, as I always say, it's like Chota Beam is in the Marvel Universe at the same time. It's never so happened in anything that an Indian product is not copying or aping into a Western product. Is, is a peer with the Western product. In fact, is leading innovation. We get calls on our mobile experience. We get calls from all of these top projects on on the games we're launching on our game roadmap because they've not been able to figure this out in a year or a couple of years of being live that we are doing in the first three months. So in some sense, you know, uh, it's almost like the East leading the West, uh, which is which is very heartening for me. And, you know, especially for me as someone who's come from the West back to the East uh, mm-hmm. and basically back to home. So and, and, I, and I think this is following a general trend in consumer startups, you've seen China teach a lot of lessons to the whole world. And we, we see this in, in a lot of different apps today. Like, you know, I, I'm back home in India. When I look at fintech apps, when I look at consumer tech apps, health tech apps, insurance tech apps, wealth tech apps, uh, I think we are ahead of the West uh, right now today in terms of innovation, in terms of how we're adding value to the customers. And, um, you know, that's extremely heartening. It's become super hard to hire people in India uh, because, you know, there's so many great startups being built. But that... Honestly, even though as a founder is a difficult thing to do, but as as an Indian, it's a very heartening thing to see that uh, you know good talent has probably twenty places they can go to, 
when I graduated out of engineering, you could only go to Infosys or TCS and you didn't want to go there uh, with all due respect to them, uh, which is why you, you then went decided to go abroad. Love it. And, and I totally agree with you that I think India, especially in Web3, India would be leading the you know innovation for the world. And in fact, I think just recently, the CEO of Binance uh, said it uh, along the lines. And Anshum, let's say, and I get asked a lot uh, by, by my friends, hey, what is this NFT? Uh, how do we get into it? Let's say you're unpacking NFT in front of a 10-year-old kid. How would you go about it? Very simple. Very, very simple. You can, um, you can I'll give you 100 candy bars. And uh, only 10 of those candy bars will have uh, a sticker of MS Dhoni in it. And, uh, you know, all 100 of you get these candy bars. And now the 10 of you have the sticker. And uh, the stickers for you, there are only 10. I can prove digitally uh, that there can only be 10. I can never cheat. I can never create a copy. You can never create a copy because it's fraud proof. And now the fact that 10 of you have got it, now uh, obviously the other 90 wanted to. The other 90 are going to try to bribe these other 10 kids or how they can get uh, those 10 NFTs for themselves. So they'll be like, you know, I'll do your homework. I'll give you batting uh, the next time we play cricket or I'll give you, you know, so-and-so money or I'll I'll, I'll carry your bag uh, while coming back from school. <laughs> so basically people will try and compete for those 10 stickers. And, and that's what uh, that's what this is. Uh, what I described by putting the 10 stickers in the 100 candy bars is like the pack mechanism, right? Like there are there is limited supply but there is higher demand. The second part is the trading where people can do stuff. And and now the third piece is what can you do with the sticker? Uh, you can put it on your school bag so that every day, everyone in your classroom sees that, oh, you have the MS Sony sticker. You can stick it onto a scrapbook and you can make a collection of it where you have eight, 10, nine stickers. And then you can show this to everyone that, hey, look at my collection. You can use this sticker in some kind of a game if you want to. So that's in, in, in some sense, that's how I describe it to a 10-year-old. I've actually just made up this example, so there may be some logical flaws to it, but uh, that's that's what that's how I would explain it to a ten-year-old, uh, and, and yeah, which is yeah. essentially which is essentially what you know. NFTs are about uh, creating scarcity that is provable. Uh, you know, so the the problem with collectibles in the physical world has been that there are fakes, and it's very hard to determine what's original, what's fake. In the digital world, blockchains for the first time made verifiable scarcity and provable ownership possible. So you can verify that only so many exist because ultimately think of it as a giant Excel spreadsheet or a giant Google Doc that's owned by like 5,000 people. And you can, let's say that's got, hey, these are the 10 MS Dhoni stickers. And, uh, you know, uh, sticker number one is owned by XYZ, sticker number two is owned by ABC, so on and so forth. You cannot have an 11 sticker. Uh, it can never happen because it's coded that way. Every time you need to change the owner of a particular sticker, a majority of those 4,000 people that own the spreadsheet need to approve it. So that's exactly what it is, right? Like today, if this had to happen in the centralized world, it would happen where the spreadsheet would have been owned by Fancraze or the spreadsheet would have been owned by, by Dhoni or the spreadsheet would have been owned by BCCI. But that's not the case. The spreadsheet is actually owned by like thousands of people. So that's, that's what NFTs have basically done. Uh, and uh, of course, there's been a glut. Licensed NFTs have the advantage that, you know, only some people can get the license. So, you know, there is that, there is an additional layer of scarcity and exclusivity that comes out of it, right? Because uh, you cannot take a video of MS Dhoni hitting that six if you don't have the ITC license. And one company in the world gets the ITC license. So that's that's something that's, you know, that's why sports NFTs have actually become very popular and they hold value. Uh, 
because there is a centralized component to it, which is the official license. Unofficial NFTs will not. The art NFTs are harder to a certain value to because there is no origin. You know, someone can make crypto punks and someone can make a knockoff. And you know, crypto punks were the first. That's why they killed it. But a lot of these projects, there's a little bit of element of luck involved to it. Another thing that I think there's a huge advantage for sports-based NFTs, especially cricket and football, uh, and by football I mean soccer, the football that we call football, <laughs> is that unlike video games, right? Video games are seasonal. Most video games, you know, die out. Play-to-earn games are, you know, flavors of the season. Assets of these kind of games may not hold value over the long term. Uh, that's because you know you can count ten or fifteen video games on your fingertips that have lasted more than a decade. If you think about it, so but sports like cricket and football have been around for seventy years, and you know to quote an economics term, they exhibit what is called the Mindy effect. The fact that they've been around for seventy years means that there's a very high probability they'll be around for another seventy. So these have been around actually hundreds of years. So I think that's what does not change, right? So if you think about what Jeff Bezos says, you can build a business model around things that you know won't change. And you know the demand for cricket won't change. Another thing, right? Like, how do we relatively value these NFTs? Uh, if you think about it, an MS Dhoni six winning the World Cup is better than an MS Dhoni six in a World Cup final. An MS Dhoni six in a World Cup final is better than an MS Dhoni six in a normal World Cup game. An MS Dhoni six in a normal World Cup game is better than an MS Dhoni six in any game. An MS Dhoni six in any game is better than an MS Dhoni four. It's better than an MS Dhoni single. It is better than a Rishabh Pant single. I was able to build this knowledge graph, and a billion people know how this knowledge graph exists without having to tell them anything. There is an inherent map of what's more valuable that's in the brains of a billion sports fans, and that is an advantage that helps you gamify this thing like nothing else. So that's, I think, where fan craze is. That's where I think sports NFTs have such charm and appeal, and you know that's simply what NFTs are. The the kid could be like, "Why monitor banega? So I will make it," and others will like you. Dhoni ka sticker kiske baas hai? I think, you know, of course. Uh, it has a lot of use cases and one of it is again uh, you know it, it it enhances status as well and uh, we'll switch gears here anshum uh, you know a lot is going on right and most of it is actually figuring it out uh, success is very little uh, and and you know when things are not working out what frameworks do you use uh, to bring yourself back on track Honestly, we've not had the time to go off track, but uh, I, I do think, like in general, uh, there are two things that matter. Right, first principles. Um, you know, whenever things don't go right, I think two or three things that we think about. Number one, why are you doing this? That's extremely important. You know, uh, if if you don't know why you're doing something, you will get lost. You have to come back to the drawing board. So it, it, this happens with us, right? Like we recently raised a huge round of funding. And when you have a lot of something, there's a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things that you can do. How do you? And and there's this great Steve Jobs quote which says, "Focus is basically wanting to do something with every sinew, with every nerve in your body, and then saying no to it." Right? That's what focus means. So, you know, getting to figure out what to focus on, what problems to focus on, whether you are in a good time or a bad time. See, if you're in a good time, then you have ten things that you can do that you potentially need to figure out which three you do. If you're in a bad time, you probably have only one thing to do, and you're like, "How do I do this?" But again, the the solution will always come from knowing what is it that you originally set out to do. So keeping that mission very close to your heart is extremely important. So from our perspective, you know, our mission that players should should make a new revenue stream is extremely important. It guides every decision that we make, right? And and the fans of the sport should be happy. I think these are the two key rules that help us through a lot of a lot of areas. And I think that's that's extremely important. So I think that's a framework 
we are using at Tanklay. That's a framework I have used in life as well. That always ask yourself, why are you doing this? Like, and there's nothing wrong in if the answer is I'm doing this for a promotion. I'm doing this to get a better year-end bonus. I'm doing this because I want to buy an engagement ring. I want to propose to my girlfriend. All of that is fine. But I think somewhere being honest to yourself on why you're doing it helps you navigate through the bad times and being like, hey, okay, you know, if you uh, chin up, uh, face the music and and find a solution. Uh, being negative and being dishonest to yourself is 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 the worst trap you can get into personally or professionally. And I think that's the that's the important thing. And it's hard. It's extremely hard. You know, you're 22, 23 years old. Uh, you're trying to figure the world out. And, and, and at the end of the your 20s, you realize the key was not in figuring the world out. The key was in figuring yourself out. Uh, and, you know, we, we kept we kept trying to figure everything else around us. We didn't we didn't figure out who we were. I think that's my basic rule. Go back to who you are. Love it. Uh, so we know you because of fan craze. What do your friends know you for? My actually friends know me for uh, someone who uh, has always been uh, extremely excited and passionate about mentoring and teaching people, uh, whether it's on any topic that I believe I have or I don't have knowledge on. So I'm someone that loves, uh, you know, getting into conversations uh, about any and all topics under the sun. And if, if I do believe there's something I can add uh, value to, I, I would do so in whatever setting. Uh, that's that's you know uh, what I think my friends know me for the most, and they they, they tease me a lot for it. That you know you uh, you know how it is, right? Which is which is also why a lot of them call me a philosopher in some sense. Uh, that's that. Apart from that, you know my friends know me for being an absolute Formula One addict. Uh, you know I have watched I think every race since 1995. Uh, I've caught it live mostly. If I've not, my dad has recorded it for me growing up uh, and it again very unintuitive uh, very few people growing up in india watch formula 1 uh, you know in starting in 1995 but i did uh, and i've been to lots of race tracks all over the world uh, i had the good fortune of watching roger federer versus rafael nadal uh, at wimbledon because uh, i was an intern working on saturday and my 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 boss uh, had a british wife and the british grand prix was on the same weekend and lewis hamilton had qualified on pole so he had two tickets. There were only two interns working on the floor that day. And uh, he gave it to the two of us. And we like, go watch the Wimbledon final tomorrow. And I saw probably the greatest tennis match of all time. So, you know, my friends know me for lucking into these situations. Lucky. But, you know, but being being a being a Formula One fan, apart from that, I think I'm, I'm someone who's uh, uh, been extremely, uh, extremely close to my family. So, you know, even though I've been in the U.S., uh, I'm an only child. I have tons and tons of cousins, uh, and I have uh, I have kept in touch with every one of them in spite of being far away. In fact, that's what they've always said: when you were far away, you kept in touch with us. Now that you're in India, you're barely there. That's that's just a function of you know fan plays and and round being uh, keeping me super busy. But I think yeah, those are the things. Those are the things. Uh, sports, uh, you know, love love getting into thought thought thoughtful debates, and you know. Uh, mentoring advising sessions and and you know spending a lot of time with family travel is the cliched one you know someone who's lived abroad for 15 years obviously has seen the world and has prioritized that uh you know that's but that's that's a very obvious one i mean that's that's not something that you know is unique to me i think today in my generation everyone with with whatever means they have uh, they love to travel and explore new places uh, so you know travel and food and reading books that's that's just par for the course 
man lucky you uh, you got to watch that match and uh, <clears throat> and yeah when you said uh, you know 20s are not really about figuring things out it's about figuring yourself out and i was like bhai deep chala gaya vyansham uh, and uh, no but you don't realize but you don't realize until you are 30 that's the problem <laughs> Yeah 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 no love it love it anshum uh really appreciate you for making the time for coming on the podcast uh, i had a lot of fun and really excited for you uh, and the team at fancraze and excited for what the future holds uh, for fancraze thanks again thank you thank you sir thank you so much thanks mate